Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everybody, today I have back with me again one of my favorite people to speak with and one of my favorite guests that all the listeners of One Broken Mom also absolutely love, and that's Lindsay Gibson. Lindsay and I have spoken a couple of times about emotionally immature parents. First, we tackled the emotionally immature mom, and then we talked about what adults are like when they grow up with emotionally immature parents. So you can go back and and find those other episodes if this is your your first venture into One Broken Mom. And um, she has really become the expert, honestly, in identifying and naming this condition of emotionally immature parents and uh, abbreviated EIP. And so she's been able to put her arms around how their parenting style creates unstable and sometimes chaotic experiences for us during our childhood and what that carries over into our adulthood. Now, she has just published a follow-up book to her first book, which is Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, and her new book is called Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents, Practical Tools to Establish Boundaries and Reclaim Your Emotional Autonomy. And so we're going to talk today about what some of those tools are and why they're important. So welcome back, Lindsay. Oh, it's so good to be back with you, Emma. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. And like I said, I, I gushed before the recording started, everybody, about how excited I am that she's here. So um, it's like the honor is all mine. So um, I, I mentioned before that we have actually, do- we've dove into, you know, what the emotionally immature parent is a couple of times. So I don't want us to spend um, too much redefining what that is. But I do think that when we mention the word emotionally immature, the image of a child pops up into, you know, most people's minds. And this adult version of emotionally immature is categorized or referred to as Peter Pan's, the boy who never, you know, grew up. Are these metaphors what you mean when you say emotionally immature? I mean, or or can emotionally immature people actually look, you know, different from that? Yeah, I I think that when you use uh, um, the metaphors like Peter Pan um, or the little princess or whatever, it it captures a certain type, certainly. Um, what I have been interested in doing, though, is to sort of define the thing that is the, the fundamental strain that's running through all these different types. Um, and, and those um, characteristics are very, uh, very deep, and, they're, and they hold across. So the Little Princess and Peter Pan and the other types, <clears throat> they will all have these similar characteristics. And so the emotional immaturity is kind of more the foundational thing. Um, and I came by it by doing a lot of psychological testing early in my career and seeing a lot of children. And what the therapists would want to know who'd ordered the testing was, um, is this kid uh, developmentally on track? Are they, uh, are they uh, tracking along 
in the same developmental path as other kids. And so my job would be to look at, yes, this is a 10-year-old, but are they functioning as a 10-year-old or are they functioning as a three-year-old? And I kind of just carried that sensibility forward into my therapy work. And I could listen to my patients talk about their parents or their significant others or friends. And I could hear those characteristics of childhood coming through. So it, it's a very basic kind of childlike immaturity that is underneath all the other characteristics. Mm-hmm. And children seem to be, um, you know, very self-centered. <laughs> you know, we've, you know yeah. I've got kids. <laughs> Uh, and that, you know, they're self-centered about things. Uh, they seem to be, uh, you know, their emotional regulation is, you know, inconsistent at best. <laughs> um, and yeah. so, yeah. Um, and so when, when people read the first book and listened to our interview, I can imagine that a lot of them came away with, yep, that makes a lot of sense. You totally nailed my parents. That's exactly what I'm dealing with. And they probably just decided to leave it at that and, and, and not do anything about it. Just have this awareness of now they knew how to define, you know, what their, what was going on with their families. Mm -hmm. Cause it, it is difficult. I think before reading your book to, to equate, the behavior of our parents, you know, one or both of them, you know, possibly as being emotionally immature, it, it just, it just feel, it felt vague until you kind of defined it. Um, but, but why is it important to try to resolve a relationship with parents um, and not just let it go or cut them off or, you know, just deal with it the way that you've always been dealing with it? Uh, that, that is such a good question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's a deep one. Um, <laughs> well, we got an hour. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll start back with the, um, uh, you know, back in uh, old days in psychotherapy, there was a guy named Murray Bowen, and he talked about uh, family systems theory. And he noted all these different reactions that people can have to their families of origin, some of which were healthier, meaning that uh, the person doing them, felt stronger, felt better, felt less preoccupied with the family, you know, sort of had recovered from the family system. And then other forms of dealing with them, which uh, left the person unsettled or unfinished and maybe even still obsessed <laughs> in their minds with their parents. And one of those was what he called the emotional cutoff. And the emotional cutoff is when somebody just, like it sounds, cuts off contact with the parent, uh, moves away, either doesn't have contact or has minimal contact. And that's one way of solving it. And incidentally, I mean, I really support that. When parents are terribly emotionally destructive and there's, you know, attempts to reach them have not worked and they just are, um, they're just creating a toxic kind of experience I am all in favor of cutting off contact, okay, because I think that's kind of a self-survival uh, thing that you have to do sometimes. But most of the people, I have to tell you, most of the people that I have talked to in therapy or that contacted me about the first book, they weren't asking, how can I get rid of my contact with my parents or how do I cut off from them? You know, like to a person, they were all saying, how do I handle them? <laughs> so... It seems like, um, from, you know, from my experience anyway, that people really want to find ways of being able to be themselves around their parents. And in fact, in the last chapter of this 
uh, new book that came out in May, I talk about how what you probably really always wanted with your parent was to be able to be yourself around them, for, you know, kind of independent of what they were doing, but to be able to say what you were thinking or speak up about what you were feeling or even to declare what you wanted or didn't want because these parents uh, and this is true, uh, I really generalize more in the book um, uh, to, to include everybody who's an emotionally immature person, not just parents, but everybody who is emotionally immature, they tend to do this thing where because they're the only person in the room, psychologically speaking, <laughs> they uh, and because they have such... Um, uh, big reactions when other people try to uh, assert themselves around them, it, it ends up with them shutting you down uh, so that you think twice before you do or say anything because you've been conditioned to fear their reactions. So I figured that the best thing I could do for people was to help them figure out not how to change their parents, um, but how to still be present and conscious when they were with their parent and not go into an immobilized state where the parent yet again just takes over the interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, that, that speaks to me quite a bit here. I, was, uh, I wrote down the word emotional cutoff. I know my choice for myself at you know, 18 to you know, years old was to, to do that, to begin that process of cutting myself out because my, my, my experiences were getting frustrating and, and angry for me. You know, it's just at a point of which, and I think that finally after having um, two kids and then having, um, you know, a parent that became less interested in, you know, and being in my life or, you know, certainly exhibiting it, maybe saying one thing, but doing, you know, behavior was something totally different. I, that's when I finally just said, I'm done. Yeah, I'm, I'm done with this. Um, and, you know, living far away makes that easy to be able to do something like that. Um, and so when, you know, asking about just letting it be, I mean, that's certainly the tactic that I've, that I've taken, you know, which was to just move on. Um, and, but I do know a lot of people, like you said, um, you know, still have relationships to some degree with a parent and, and want to be able to, to, you know, to stay connected to them in some way that doesn't feel, you know, like I said, my, my connection just left me feeling frustrated, angry over and over again. So it wasn't that yeah. necessarily, um, because sometimes emotionally immature parents are, um, emotionally abusive, like constantly. Mm -hmm. And some yeah. of them are just, um, emotionally just disconnected from you completely. Like you said, like they're just, it's all about their emotions. They don't know how to, to understand or, you know, um, see other people's emotions. And in, and, and while that might not seem angry looking on the outside or abusive on the outside, you know, being a recipient of that, that's where my anger, you know, really built up from. And so I, I've heard this word um, differentiation, um, or emotion differentiation, um, which I, I believe applies to this and, and, and where some people have it and some people don't and emotionally immature people tend to lack this differentiation. Would you mind explaining the concept of, of differentiation? Yeah, that, that is um, originally also a, a, a family systems word, meaning that uh, what we would call also individuation. Uh, Murray Bowen called it differentiation, meaning that you have separated enough of your identity outside of your family role that you are 
an independent individual, well, I should say interdependent individual because uh, you have relationships, but you are not just defined as your role in the family and you have moved out of the family enmeshment that's entirely appropriate for a little child. I mean, the little child is a part of the family in terms of their their entire existence. But differentiation means that you just are, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you are moving yourself out into a state of individuality and finding yourself as someone who is different um, in some ways from your family. So, mm -hmm. and, and it's also associated people who, who are able to do that differentiation process, which incidentally often also leads to m more conflict and, and more um, uh, disagreement. This is why adolescents can be so hard uh, because they're finding out all the ways that they're different from their parents. But as a person moves out into that process, they also tend to get stronger in their ability to deal with adversity. Uh, their relationships become more honest and emotionally intimate because they've become like a more complex and um, uh, rich person inside as they differentiate out. Because you can't differentiate out unless you're tuning into yourself and noticing the differences between you and your family members. So differentiation is huge for psychological development. Mm -hmm. what, can, what can interfere with an ability to do that um, for somebody to actually be able to develop that skill um, in that? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what uh, so much of my book focuses on. Um, <laughs> well, it's a good thing you're here talking about it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, I just want to... I just want to take one step back and, and go to something that is very central about the relationship with emotionally immature people. And, and then we'll, we'll talk about what, you know, what the obstacles become to the child's differentiation. But for emotionally immature people, and this is true for little kids as well, they need to have other people help them with their self-esteem and their emotional stability, their emotional regulation. So um, they depend on, this is all largely subconscious by the way, but, but they depend on other people to treat them in ways where they feel good about themselves all the time. They're right, um, they're good, they, uh, they're the most important person. And they also depend on them to maintain their emotional stability because they don't have good stress tolerance and they tend to uh, go to extremes. So it's, so uh, they're all good, they're all bad, you're all good, you're all bad. If you try to, for instance, if you uh, try to tell your parent, um, look, uh, you know, I, 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 we don't spank our kids. I, I don't want you to hit Bobby when he does such and such. Uh, that's not okay. And then they go to extremes and say, well, I guess I just must be the worst mother ever. <laughs> and you want to pull your hair out because you're saying, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get you to uh, listen to me and, and respect what we do in our home. But they don't do that because in their mind, you have to be responsible for making them feel good. So what happens is that you as the adult child, or the child growing up as well, you are saddled with this thing that starts where you have to think twice about everything you do. 
you can think about what you want to do. You can think about what you really think. You can think about what you, or you can feel what you really feel. But before you express it, you are conditioned to think, how is this going to affect mom? How is this going to affect dad? Or if it's your friend, how is this going to affect her? Because their reactions to something they don't like are so unpleasant that most people, just like Pavlovian conditioning, most people will back up and start to think about what they just said or how they said it so that they don't get that bad reaction again. So you can imagine what this does to a child where the child has to always be thinking about um, if they're if they have a different point of view, if they disagree with the parent, if if their feelings are things that would upset the parents, if that child always has to be thinking about the parent's reaction first, that makes their individuation, their differentiation from the family, uh, a very complicated, sticky, difficult thing. And so, the, that that emotionally immature relationship system is something that actually works against differentiation in a person. It it deprives them of their individuality, and it makes them feel immobilized and, and scared and uh, uncomfortable uh, in expressing themselves around their um, parent or it could, could be a friend, could be a significant other, but uh, it really messes with your ability to just plain be yourself when you're in a relationship with these people. Mm-hmm. That's um, as I'm sitting here kind of conjuring this, because one of the things that, you know, again, going through your book and reading your book is you definitely, this book is is very focused on communication, you know, more so obviously than the other books and how to do it. But also you spend a great deal of time talking about, like you just mentioned there, silence, the lack of communication that we learn to grow up with when it comes to expressing ourselves, you know, to our parents, you know, one or both of them. Um, And so I want to point that out that I just notably, you know, um, it is about it is about talking, you know, and I do some work with um, assertiveness, you know, particularly in women um, who have, because women generally have a hard time speaking up for themselves and it's expressed through the results of that are expressed through not only just in their, their personal relationships, but when they're in professional settings, they, um, they don't ask for raises as often they get, you know, they um, have a hard time bringing up top, you know, difficult topics in, uh, with bosses, coworkers, or, you know, anything. And we talk about, you know, women being groomed more so perhaps as girls than, than boys in this, um, in this area. And I know from my experience, as I've reflected back on, on, um, my lack of assertiveness is due to, um, evolving from being compliant, like you mentioned of fear of speaking up because I, I had a, a, an unstable environment with experiences that said, if you piss mom off, she might leave. <laughs> so don't. Right. And yeah. um, all the way to, again, uh, being so frustrated that I was never going to get through to her. So why bother anyways? And, and we adapt, you know, if, if we adapt that relationship subconsciously to everybody, every difficult person we ever run into, we treat them with those skill sets that we, um, 
that we uh, learned, you know, through this, this experience. And sometimes people don't realize that. And, you know, individuation to me, I think is a, is fascinating because I, I've always felt that I am completely an individual. I'm very proud of my individuality, but, um, and so people might not say, well, no, I, I, I'm my own person. Yeah. But you're talking about, but are you your own person all the time when you run into difficult people and, or do you change yourself? And that was a, a startling revelation for me to realize that, yeah, I do. I evolve myself when around certain people, but with other people, I am free to be, I'm free to be me. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you're expressing and, and talking about um, communication, let's just talk a little bit about that assertiveness piece. Um, you know, why will some people feel really comfortable speaking up with, uh, you know, um, someone else and then yet, you know, kind of, you know, I don't want to say wimp out because I don't want to judge anybody here, but feel like, you know, I can't, I can't open my mouth here, even if it's not their parent, it, it, even if it is with a friend or a coworker or a boss or, or somebody like that. Oh, this is such a great question. Um, well, it's it's neurological. Um, what they have found is that we have a um, a part of our vagal nerve that picks up on whether or not we are interpersonally safe. And this this is I mean this is a we're all familiar with the fight or flight thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a part of the vagal nerve that. Uh, is responsible for making us feel um, connected, seen, heard, safe, comforted, um, and just feel good being around other people. And when you're around someone who has empathy, like maybe this is a a good friend perhaps, or maybe a good mate, um, you feel safe. You feel like, well, you know, if things get really bad, I can go to this person and talk to them about how I'm feeling and they're going to listen to me and we may not work it out right away, but they're not going to, uh, like, like you said earlier, like threaten to leave or uh, tell me I'm a bad person. They may be upset, but, but they are there and they will remain there and we can have a relationship even through the hard times. But with emotionally immature people, you, you can see it on their face. Our face, faces and our hearts are connected. So when you see an expression on someone's face where they're looking at you with a deadpan expression, <laughs> you know, unexpressive eyes, and there's a chill in the air, uh, we are conditioned to shut our hearts down, our connection centers down. And that is very hard on the body and it's very hard on our emotional hearts as well. So the response that you get physically looking at them from emotionally immature people is they may start to furrow their brow or squint their eye. They may set their jaw. Uh, you may see their lips compress. And all these things are saying to your, your security center, your, your heart, this is, this is moving toward danger. This person has moved from being okay to getting set against you. And there's no human being on this planet that doesn't recognize that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's normal neurologically, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the uh, cues that they give can be extremely subtle. I mean, I'm talking micro expressions on the face. Uh, for instance, like giving a smile but not crinkling the eyes 
or there's a tone of voice, or there's a body posture. And we read this stuff, and we know that it's not safe, meaning that if we continue on this vein, our relationship with them is progressively getting worse. So that makes most of us who have any kind of empathy or desire for the relationship to go well, or the maybe it could be a meeting or whatever, um, that makes us begin to feel anxiety, and then we start doing whatever we do when we get anxious. With the adult children of emotionally mature parents, what they have learned to do is they start to work hard. Um, they either <laughs> try to try to figure it out, or they will um, begin adapting themselves to the situation, trying to tell the person what it is that um, they want, apparently want to hear. Anything to kind of move it back towards something that feels safer. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an involuntary response, um, but it's also something that uh, people have been trained to do in order to keep, you know, mom or dad from getting upset with them and withdrawing their love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, let alone uh, getting mad and starting to hit them or, you know, something more uh, overtly abusive. Right, right. And I think that, you know, that's important for people. You know, we do talk about, you know, the blend of psychology and neuroscience because they are, they are connected together now. Um, before they, you know, 20 some years ago, before there was the, the plethora of abilities to be able to research the brain and the biology of the brain, um, you know, psychology was pretty well grounded in just some theories and then research and maybe studying humans or maybe studying animals and, and things like that. But since we've been able to kind of bring those two things together now, you know, one of the things of raising awareness is being able to tell somebody is that some of these reactions are normal and they are, they are a part of your biology. And, and, and because I, I think that also helps reduce any shame or guilt people have with themselves and their inability to speak up. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the other observations through the course of my life and especially through the work that you've been doing was um, seeing how the emotionally immature parent turned into the emotionally immature romantic partners for me. <laughs> We've talked about this before. and We talked about how that impacts adults um, in the last episode that we did on, on you know, this, this mimicking and that we can be drawn to recreating these experiences over and over again until we know you know, that that's what's going on here. And yeah. I had just met with a friend who had said, you know, talking about one of my, my past relationships, uh, he had, you know, said that we all thought you had the perfect relationship of you being the adult and he was the kid and you just figured a way <laughs> to work it all out. And, and at the time it was like, yeah, that's exactly what we had. But in reality, getting outside of that role, you know, that I had been groomed to play, you know, in my life, it was a terrible relationship. Um, and so, you know, for all the violations, you know, that you describe in this book and in your past books about why these are, are unsettled and, um, and unhealthy. So would you recommend, you know, anybody that's inclined to grab that book and apply it to their romantic partner, you know, the strategies that you outline in, in terms of tools of communication, or should this really be on, on parents and not try to, uh, try to, to employ these strategies with a person, but approach the romantic partner maybe a little differently? I yeah definitely think that it it's applicable to any emotionally immature relationship uh, because you know foundationally they're all about our type of attachment um, how we have learned to comport ourselves in relationships 
how we've learned to take care of other people or sacrifice ourselves out of fear of being seen as selfish. Uh, I mean, all these things that go into understanding your relationship with your parents, you, you can take them right over into uh, romantic relationships, friendships, um, you know, whatever kind of relationship it is, because the dynamics are the same. I mean, there may be elements of a romantic relationship that are not the same as your parents, thank God, but they are fundamentally at an emotional level very similar, and you can use the same techniques with them as well, definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, you you said a word, selfish, and that actually um, is a trigger word, uh, you know, not for me, but it it, it did crop up some to me, and it it did make me think of a person that reached out to me recently who was feeling, you know, um, that they were acting selfish, you know, for, uh, you know, in their parenting role, as well as in their personal role. And, you know, it makes me wonder about really the definition of this role, especially as we're talking about emotionally immature family dynamics with our parents and being groomed to worry about their needs. You know, that's a word that will get thrown back at a child and an adult to, to, to me, to manipulate you into feeling those feelings of guilt and shame, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So I, do you have thoughts on the word selfish? Because I feel like that's a word that um, a lot of people don't assert themselves because the person they're trying to do this with and express a boundary with is turning around and telling them that they're being selfish. And we instantly, and I say we, because I'm, you know, I've experienced this myself. We instantly feel like, oh my God, maybe I am being selfish. You know, how do we talk somebody out of that, that word and, and, and taking the power of that word away for them so that they can um, be comfortable with doing this boundary setting and this retuning of their communication. You know, I mean, if, if there was anything I could do in my career, <laughs> it, it, you know, that would work that, to reach people, it would be that very thing. That if you're worried about being selfish, you are probably not selfish, um, because if you truly are emotionally immature and you are selfish you're not being self-reflective enough to even know that. And so people that uh, have been, like you say, groomed to pay attention to other people's needs at their own expense out of fear of being called selfish, those people are the people who usually are concerned about other people and concerned about the quality of their relationships. Emotionally immature people are not thinking that way. They're in a distortion field where their issues, their needs, their problems are the only thing that matters. And when they approach you with their needs, you're supposed to drop yours, catch their feeling of urgency. That's very important, that emotional contagion. Catch their feeling of urgency about their problem and move heaven and earth, including sacrificing your own health in order to meet their needs so that they can calm down. Because remember, one of their uh, prime mandates for any relationship is that you will help emotionally regulate me. And they lead us into, with with this, you know, um, immaturity, they lead us into this state of mind where we have a kind of a relationship contract with them that is totally unconscious, but works to keep you in a, in, in a certain position vis-a-vis them where you uh, are like the opposite of selfish. You have actually become self-sacrificing 
And that's the way they feel best <laughs> is when you're self-sacrificing. So one of the things I had fun with in this last book was I sat down and I thought, now, what is it that we have agreed to with people like this? And I made up a list of um, relationship contract items that I think we uh, kind of unconsciously sign uh, through this, these kinds of relationships. And this could be true. I'm going to read a couple to you if that's okay. Yeah. Oh, totally. Please. Okay. Okay, so just think about this could be a parent, but maybe you have a problem boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe you have a coworker or an old friend, um, and you don't like the way the relationship feels because uh, you're tired, uh, they're exhausting, and uh, you're feeling apprehensive around them all the time. So here's an example. Um, if you're doing this, you want to be conscious that you may have signed a contract that agrees to something like this. I agree your needs should come before anyone else's. Please say anything you want and I won't object. It's true. I must be ignorant if I think differently from you. Please educate me about what I should like or dislike. It's fine not to think before you speak. Of course you don't have to control yourself. And of course, you should be upset if anyone says no to you about anything. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm shaking my head right now. Oh. So I just, I just, I had so much fun with that because I thought, oh my gosh, we really, you know, you know, the subtext is that we really have agreed to some of these crazy things that, you know, when you put them into words and you write them down like that. And, and I really encourage readers to make up their own relationship contracts that they signed, you know, back when they were five years old mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> about the relationship dynamics and see if they can, by naming it like that, they can begin to bring their adult mind into the situation and say, well, wait a minute, nobody gets to be the only one who has an opinion, you know, mm -hmm. they, uh, you come back into reality instead of being in their distortion field. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and I, I have tackled the topic of relational abuse, you know, the extremes that can happen um, when you um, have some unhealed traumas. And, you know, you don't just end up with irritating people in your life, but you end up in situations where it, to the extreme case, it becomes a, you know, emotionally and or physically abusive situation. And, yeah. you know, what your contract there, like we laughed about it and I'm, I appreciate that we did. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself that, you know, framing it in that way almost makes that I, I was shaking my head. It's like, yeah, if somebody had said something like that and identified, you know, those things a little bit earlier, you might be able to have somebody witness their situation a little differently, especially if it might be because some of those phrases and some of those actions um, can be extremely abusive. You know, the whole, mm -hmm. like, don't, don't disagree with me. You know, some, like I said, sometimes people are just annoying yeah. when you disagree with them. And then some people can become really emotionally controlling and, um, and it can be, you know, a dangerous and unhealthy situation. So, Right. Yeah. And in in the book, um, I may just to, to, just to make a note on that, um, I do talk about situations where uh, I really made a point of this, that if the person, if the other person is dangerous, um, if they are, uh, you know, physically harmful or could get out of control or whatever, I do talk about uh, the care that you have to take with that because it, it's serious business um, when it, it's getting to that point. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And like I said, we, we uh, you know, um, 
it is a it is a topic on one broken mom because not everybody here's the thing that's about it is um you know to be you're not destined to be in an abusive relationship if your parents were you know abusive like if you were beaten as a you know beaten um or really emotionally degraded um like in an extreme extreme form that doesn't you know, predicate that you're going to be in a situation, but it seems more often that people find themselves in abusive relationships coming out of situations like this, a childhood like this, where Mm -hmm. you just have not learned um, anything about boundaries or that you exist as an individual and that your needs matter. And it, um, and it, 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 it can be priming. Some people don't end up in them, but some people definitely do end up in them. And, um, and so it's uh, this, you know, your whole book here and these tools, and these practical strategies are, can be, uh, you know, very important for practicing with your parents and then starting to look and see if they can be applied around you and possibly kind of liberate you from some, you know, potentially toxic situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, I know that at the end of the day, um, when we talk about setting boundaries, and, and again, that's what this book really is, is how to define what those are. Um, you even have at the end of the book, the Bill of Rights, um, you know, for, for people, which is a reminder, you know, that your boundaries matter. Um, but people have a, people tend to have a fear. And I imagine maybe you've seen this in your practice that you explain to them, this is what you need to do. And then ultimately, you know, people want to back down from that. You know, what's, what's, what's really driving that fear for people to actually move forward and hold boundaries and continue to do them in the face of, of the fear that they're feeling? Oh yeah, I mean, can't you just feel the anxiety rising? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. when you start when you start talking about setting boundaries or speaking up or holding your ground, uh, people who have been in these emotionally immature relationship systems where it's all about their self esteem, it's all about their emotional stability, they know what you're asking them to do when you start talking about setting boundaries and so forth. And it's extremely anxiety provoking because a lot of people aren't good at it. I mean, where has their practice come from? There hasn't been any or there hasn't been much. So one of the things that I really stress in the book is you do not have to be super good at assertiveness or communication or any of this. I mean, you can do these uh, methods, these things as hesitantly, as awkwardly, as timidly as you feel. And it doesn't make any difference because the difference needs to occur on the inside of the person. It doesn't occur just in the action with the emotionally immature person. So I just want to really stress that to people because you don't have to be an aggressive, assertive, strong, quote unquote, person to do this work. It's an inside job. So whatever you manage to do, if you know that you are setting a boundary, you don't have to be so skilled that you make them accept that you're you're setting a boundary. You have to just know in your heart that this is the outcome that you want. I want to do this. Um, my husband doesn't want me to do this. My mother doesn't want me to do this. That's fine. But at the end of the day, this is what I'm going to do. And however I get there is Fine. I don't get any points on nailing the landing. I don't get any points on appearing strong. I don't even get any points if I convince them or not. 
my success comes from my ending up with the outcome that I wanted and I was true to myself in whatever awkward, scared way I managed to do it. So, <laughs> so I try to really lessen people's anxiety about how they set boundaries and just say, you know, however you crawl your way toward that outcome that you want, it doesn't matter. What The thing that matters is that you become as important in your own mind as they are, and you never lose sight of the fact that you have good stuff inside you. And whatever they try to do to make you feel bad about yourself is not true. As long as you remind yourself of those two things, I am just as important as they are, and I have good stuff inside me. You will be well on your way toward dealing with these people in a way that secures your boundaries, allows you to have autonomy with whatever emotions you're feeling, and also clears your thought process so that you are confident in knowing what it is that you want and what you think. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I, I One of the chapters that really struck me, and it was the, the, the title of it as well as the content, was that... Um, EIPs, emotionally immature parents, are hostile to our inner worlds, and that they're yeah. um, and and we, uh, you know, I like the word hostile because it, it really does feel that way. Um, that they they are quick to judge and ridicule, and if your environment growing up in that way um, really creates a lot of self doubt, you know, in in, in you um, and stuff, and um, so I, you know it's a strong statement, you know, that, that chapter is a strong statement. So um, why did you feel it was important to, to really kind of describe that experience in, in such a powerful word? Yeah. And, and in fact, um, there was a, a little bit of um, pushback uh, in the editing process around that chapter. Really? <laughs> uh, I think for the very reason that you're, you're expressing right now, but I felt it was very important to use that word hostile. Um, because that is the feeling tone. When, when uh, an EIP doesn't like the interference of your, uh, your, what you want or your inner experience, uh, they just want to steamroller over all that and get on to what they want. Um, when you bring up your inner world, they do become hostile. Like I was talking earlier with the um, that uh, that face heart connection, they look like they don't like it and they don't like you when you're moving into expressing your inner experience. Um, it can be as simple as um, you you offer an opinion uh, uh, at the dinner table or on a date. I'm talking about other other people besides parents. And the person uh, shows that they don't like talking about that kind of inner world stuff. So they, so they might make a, um, a sort of a mocking comment, like, you know, do all your friends think that? <laughs> or they might say something um, that sort of ridicules like, and, and, and I mean that literally because they'll say, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And you have just said something that you really think or that you really feel. Uh, or they'll say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Uh, or there's no need to be so angry. And these are all extremely invalidating experiences that 
they are trying to shut down. So when one person is trying to shut down another person and they're doing it with that look on their face, I call that hostile. And I don't think that's an inaccurate word for the response that they have. The other thing is that the hostility comes from you are if you are sharing a um, heartfelt or a deeply personal feeling or belief, that is a form of emotional intimacy. You're, you are showing your inner world to them, and they get extremely uncomfortable with emotional intimacy. They just uh, curdle up inside, and it makes them feel extremely uncomfortable. And so here's where the aggressiveness comes from. It comes also from a fear that you're taking the conversation into a deeper level, uh, a deeper emotional level, where they are not equipped to go. Um, they are really not good at that kind of deeper sharing. They're actually scared of it. And so that's another reason why they come back with that defensive uh, hostility is they want to, they'd be much more comfortable if you were in a fight than if you were sharing your feelings with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, again, the hostility, like I said, I, I toned in on that word because, uh, you know, my evolution through my experiences is that if finally that's what it felt like was that it was just violations and that, you know, that word felt it connected with me in that way, because as an adult, you know, having experienced it and then also having, um, again, recreated it unintentionally, uh, you know, every time that sharing of, you know, what was important to me and having it met with, um, uh, you know, use the word ridicule, you know, teasing, um, making, being made fun uh -huh. of, being dismissed, called overly dramatic or bitchy or, you know, whatever word anybody wants to, yeah. you, know, you know, throw out there. Um, you know, it's hard to not feel a little angry inside about that. And, you know, and so that's, I, I'm glad you stuck with the word. So I'm glad you, you held your guns in the editing process because it's, <laughs> when you've experienced it, that's, that, that, that term in that chapter is spot on for that, that feeling that you have to, um, kind of overcome or understand, you know, um, in yourself as you try to either mend that communication or at least mend any relationships you want to, or cut them off, you know? Yeah. So, so the book is really not a therapy book. Um, it's a coaching book, you know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which I think is really valuable for, so for people, you know, again, some people choose to listen to shows like One Broken Mom because they're not quite ready to step into therapy or, you know, maybe don't feel like they need to, but they are certainly looking for techniques and strategies. And so, you know, the book is practical tools to establish it. So, um, so you're, so this is something that a, a person doesn't have to have gone through unwinding their whole, you know, through therapy, what their childhood traumas are. And, and I guess that's the other thing I wanted to say about the word violation is that um, it fits because that does generate trauma for people to have that kind of uh, an environment around there. So, um, but you don't have to go through therapy to pick this book up and to start to be able to apply some things. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I tried to make it as um, user-friendly as possible uh, so that people can just get ideas uh, for things, for instance, you know, things to say, things to do, uh, things to do inside yourself when you're standing in front of your parent. Um, because lots of times if we, if we grew up in a system that did not validate or help us to put our feelings into words, um, we just come upon this blank spot. It's like there's this vacuum. 
well, what what else would you do but shut down and feel bad in a situation like this where they're taking over? And so, um, yeah, to to have some ideas about things to say or do or feel or think when you're confronted with uh, people who like to take you over in one way or another, uh, that is, to me, that's just pragmatics. And so, yeah, in that in that regard, this this is really a coaching book to give people, you know, unthought ideas for how to respond when somebody is trying to make you feel guilty for having a different desire from them, and also um, to give you some ideas about how to think about your rights. Um, I mean, I, I was wondering if I could just read a couple of the things from the Bill of Rights um, yeah. that I thought were kind of uh, radical. Uh, but, <laughs> Please do. But, but I, I also think that, um, you know, when I was looking at, at the Bill of Rights, I went back to uh, the United Nations Charter on Human Rights. And you know what? It's the same thing. The The, the thing on human rights from the United Nations is all about people have dignity and they have internal experience and they need to be treated with respect and like they matter. And I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, I didn't even realize that that, that was so psychological, but it is. <laughs> so um, here's just a, a few examples of the Bill of Rights that are at the end of the book. Okay, one of them is, I have the right to set limits on your hurtful or exploitative behavior. If you have ever tried to set limits on an EIP when they're being uh, exploitative or hurtful, you'll know what I mean, mm-hmm. um, why you need to be reminded of that right, because they will act like you have no right and they should be able to continue their behavior without any objection from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another one I love is I have the right not to be your rescuer. Mm-hmm. That is one that would probably earn the the title of um, selfish uh, more than anything else because there's this assumption that no matter what situation they've gotten themselves into, of course you are going to rescue them because it would be selfish not to. But Mm -hmm. you really do have the right not to be the rescuer. Um, Another one is I have the right to feel or think anything I want. Again, an EIP will react in horror if you do express what you feel and want, and it's different from theirs. They they will act like you have committed a sin. But you do have the right to do that. It's it's completely basic. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is I have the right not to do things if it isn't a good time for me. There's always a a time urgency uh, with EIPs. And I have the right not to feel rushed just because you're impatient. Uh, people often feel rushed all the time uh, around EIPs because the EIPs stress tolerance is so low. They want everything to have happened yesterday. And they especially um, approach emergencies like that. I would say quote unquote emergencies that you should um you don't have the right to take a minute to think about what you want to do or even to think about what they're suggesting you're just supposed to do it so those are some ideas about how people can remind themselves that they are a person in the relationship and it's not all about the EIP right right i and wrote the united down, nations right. with us. 
<laughs> well, um, I, you know, and I wrote down the, the note here um, uh, that resistance is normal. And because, you know, again, having going through this experience, you know, and from my perspective here, you know, you read a book and to diagnose your world and the people around you. That's usually how this uh, self-help process, you know, starts for many people is trying to make sense of the world around them. You know, who are these people? Why, why are, why am I dealing with this? And then it, it shifts to this internal work for yourself um, of like, okay, now, now why, why have I surrounded myself? Why does my circle include people like this, you know? And, um, and so when uh-huh. you're sitting there applying, you know, this is kind of like my advice as a, you know, um, as a person, you know, experiencing this, when you're applying the things in your book, um, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, when you read Lindsay's book and you go through all of those things, resistance is normal. They're going to fight back. They're going to blow back. They're going to object to it. Uh, you know, my experience, and I'm sure you've seen this in your therapeutic practices, they don't always just jump in line right away. Oh, thank you for doing that. I had no idea we were lacking healthy boundaries and communication styles between the two of us. Like, that's just not the, that's not the language. So the resistance is normal. And if you feel it and you get it, it doesn't mean you're wrong. Press on. Keep moving forward with that. Yeah. Because when you hit that resistance, the instant feeling, again, you know, folks, we've been groomed this way, is that we are wrong. We're not wrong. We're not wrong. So just keep at it. Um, that, that discomfort is normal with it. And like you said, you know, do it as much as you feel comfortable with doing it, but don't do it because it starts to make you feel uncomfortable because that uncomfortable is a part of it, but that's also how we get to the change to happen, right? It's how everything starts to, you do it the first time and it's scary. And the second time it's a little less scary. And by the third and fourth time you realize that, what was I afraid of, you know, and it feels good. Not only did you do it, but now you've actually got a freedom in your life that you've never been able to have before. So it's worth it. It's worth yeah, the discomfort, I guess, the is what idea. I was going to say. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. That's it. Well, Lindsay, this is another amazing conversation. I appreciate, appreciate you so much for doing this with me. Um, the links for your book are going to be in the podcast notes, so everybody can actually just bop in there, click it, go straight, go buy it. Um, links to your website to learn more about um, you and, and your other books that you've done. Are there any other ways that people can follow what you're doing? Um, right now, the website would be the best place to go. Uh, that has um, uh, information about the books. It also has a blog and a reader question and answer. Uh, and I uh, will choose um, a question from uh, a reader each month and respond to it there. Oh, cool. Well, that's pretty fun. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and congratulations on the new book. I'm, I, you know, I knew you were doing this. And so I'm excited that I got a chance to talk to you right after it's been published. It just came out in May. It's available um, from all your favorite booksellers. And again, it's called Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents, Practical Tools to Establish Boundaries and Reclaim Your Emotional Autonomy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Oh, I may. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiracone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurakoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.